and welcome to the very first episode of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And um, on this podcast, we're going to be debating the difficult decisions of reading and books. Um, each time we'll be doing one thing that's broadly about books and reading in general, um, and then hitting specific authors or books against each other in a sort of grudge match. Rachel, what are we doing this time? Today we are going to be looking at books in translation versus books written in English but set outside of England. And then we are going to be pitting the Bronte sisters against one another. I'm pretty excited. Before that, we should, I guess we should introduce who we are. Um, my name is Simon. I blog at Stuck in a Book. Um, and one of the editors of Shiny New Books. Over to um, you. <laughs> sorry, I'm interrupting already. Um, and I'm Rachel, and I blog at Book Snob. And I don't edit Shiny New Books, but sometimes I contribute to it. You have, haven't you? And it's oh. always a delight and a pleasure to have you there. Thank you much. Um, so this time, Rachel, you sort of chose this topic, the first one, in as much as you said translation and I went off on a tangent. <laughs> so, <laughs> so do you want to kick us off? What are your thoughts? Well, do you know, I really struggle with books in translation, and I know it's terrible, but I just, I don't really enjoy reading books that I know aren't really the author's words, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Okay, so... It's the issue of a translator being in the way that's a difficulty. Yeah, because you never know whether you're reading what you were supposed to read. That's, but especially when you're looking at stuff that's sort of written in the 19th century. And what I don't like is that the trend at the moment seems to be updating the language, making it more accessible, etc. We don't do that to books written in the 19th century in English. So why would we do that to books that were written in a foreign language? It just doesn't seem right to me. And I don't feel like I'm reading the real text. That's a really good point. Do you have examples? I have so many examples. <laughs> of course um, you do. The worst translation that I read recently, which wasn't even... It's, the last time I read a book in translation was about five years ago, which <laughs> I didn't like them, um, was the new version of Dr. Chivago, which was really dreadful. It was, And it was a shame because it was um, the Vera Volokonsky one. And I loved their um, translation of Anna Karenina when I read it. Um, years ago but this one it was just so convoluted and just terribly done like really literal I mean not that I speak Russian so I'm <laughs> you're the well, compare and contrast I, yeah, I mean I can't so yeah. I'm just being alive I said I could but when I was reading it compared to the um the Maud translation that I'd read before I think no not Maud Constance Garnet translation I'd read before it was the, the Constance Garnet one was contemporary and it's just so much better and then this one was just terrible and I just thought what a shame because the Anna Karenna one was great because they kept to the original this one not so much um, you're making me feel already massively ill-educated even if you're saying you've not read one for five years I've read a total of no books <laughs> written by Russians ever I <laughs> know that's but, not I started you, I haven't either technically <laughs> have I well, that, I guess that's true I mean I, I do want to read Constance Garnett's translations of anything because she's David Garnett's mum and I yeah. love David Garnett I do like <laughs> her translations actually they are very um, they're very sort of just clear and to the point okay which is not really the Russian novel, surely. But. No, but it makes it... The thing is, I, my personal feeling about translations is it's not a literally translating what's happening. It's getting the sense and the feeling of it. And from my limited experience of translating from French into English and vice versa, it's that kind of desire to get across the heart of what you're doing as opposed to literally saying this word means this, this word means this, because language is so much more than just what a word 
is on the page. It's all the connotations beneath the surface and you have to choose the right one. And I think trying to do it literally means you just suck the soul out of it, frankly. I think, yeah, the one time that I really wish people would have been literal was during my English degree when I was doing Old English. And, oh. I, yeah, and I, was, I think supposedly we were supposed to, like, fluster our way through Old English, but obviously got the translations. And everyone was like, oh, I'll, I'll make this really poetic. James Heaney, his bear wolf, was like, I'll make this really poetic. I was thinking, yeah. for the purposes of my essay, I need to know what this line means. <laughs> I don't, I don't yeah. care about no, anything else. Old but, English people really <laughs> extremes, don't they? That's our, you know, that's our um, exception to the rule, clearly, already. Yeah. Plus, every word in Old English means warrior. Like, it's, it's, not, it's nothing left. Um, to go to the main, like, X or Y debate here, it's, mm. this was not planned, okay. but I am um, heartily anti-books in English set in other countries. Really? So, we have come to, yeah, thankfully, we have come to an argument rather than just agreeing. Um, I don't read a huge amount of translated fiction, but I definitely steer clear of books that are in English in other countries because I find that they always end up just being like travel guides. It's just here, like here, that's what the flora and fauna were like in this country, and isn't it kooky the things they do? And it always just, yeah, it always just feels a bit stilted and I don't know, mannered to me. And the example which actually I did talk about when I, I appeared on the Readers podcast recently is E.M. Um, e. Forster with Passage to India and A Room with a View. Oh, I hate those books. Well, there you go. And yeah. well, maybe you hate them for different reasons. From me. I just don't like Ian Forster, but I mean, carry on. Uh, have you? Well, we need to have a little tangent. And say, have you read Howard's <laughs> End? Have you read Howard's End? <laughs> yeah, I just don't like it very much. Okay, well, this is not proving my point at all. But, um, <laughs> but with those, when it's just like, oh, they were in India, and look at what people did there, and isn't it strange that people are different? And it's like, I, I, I feel if I want to read a book in another country, I want it to be by someone who knows that country really well and doesn't think it's weird that the book's set in that country just in that way oddly with that because they're not explaining everything I get right. a better sense of what it's like um, my other example which I of a book I didn't particularly like um, set in I can't remember if it was Congo or Democratic Republic of Congo but one of them um, The Poisonwood Bible you read oh, that? yeah 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 Democratic Republic of Congo is it? Um, have you read it? yes I have thoughts? um I found it quite um, interesting, actually. I liked the fact that it was set there because it gave me an insight into what it was like to be there at that time. But do you not think you got a better insight if it was written by a Congolese person? Is Congolese the right word? I don't know. But let's say it yes, is. it is the right word, yeah. <laughs> it um, it, no, because I, <laughs> the book's not about the experience of Congolese people. It's about the experience of um, colonisation, I suppose, isn't it? Okay, that is a good point. Just like this, so I'm going to come in here and disagree with you again on things like um, a passage to India, even though I don't like it. But <laughs> uh, the thing is, the book isn't about Indian people; it's about the experience of British people in India. And if you're not seeing Indian people through British eyes, then you're not really experiencing the book as he meant it. He's not supposed to write a book about that. His plan wasn't to write a book about Indian people. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So maybe it's the intent rather than the lack of like succeeding what they're trying to do that I have a problem with I don't want to know what it's like to be English abroad I want to know right. what it's like for those people I want to know what it's like to be a person a native of that country exactly yeah yeah okay well that's fair enough yeah so I, I <laughs> <missing> out <laughs> well I just I don't know do you not just find and you don't that <laughs> um, it does just turn into like a scrapbook of interesting things they've noticed 
Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, I quite like travel literature, so that doesn't bother me. I, I actually, I love reading that sort of stuff because then it gives me inspiration of places to go on holiday. Like, I love Anne Bridges' novels, Illyrian Spring, it's the most beautiful book in the world. That, madam, is an, ex- an excellent case for the defence. You've done well, because that is a brilliant book. <laughs> I mean, that, come on, you can't say that that's not a good thing. Uh, I do love that book. But I've got to say, the bits I like least were, the, were they were describing the flowers. <laughs> but the flowers of the Dalmatian coast are so beautiful, Simon. <laughs> I'm sure they're, and I'd love someone who lives on the Dalmatian coast to write about them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, I interrupted you. Keep going. No, it's fine. I've, 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 I wasn't going to say anything else particularly interesting. <laughs> um, I, uh, yeah, I do hate travel literature. Um, and that uh, partly, and this is getting into a whole other discussion topic, um, that is because I um, I can't visualise descriptions. Oh, okay. So, yeah, whether it's of people or places, um, or worst of all, objects in a room, if they're like, the bookcase was against the wall and there was a jug on the table upset, I can't, I can't cope with it, I can't deal with it. So, That's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, so I, when I get to a sort of... Often a book set in another country will have, uh, you know, every paragraph or chapter describing notable things about the landscape um, and I I not only don't want to compute it, I just can't <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> so anything basically travel related is not going to work for you yeah essentially if, if we're not in a middle class house in the 1930s <laughs> no, I'm just like no, no not for okay, me well, you know, we all have our own <laughs> I exaggerate but. well we should get back to translated books because I want, I want to put a hearty defence in for for those because um, well I think I'm biased because I love Tevi Janssen so much have you read her? I can't remember if you have or not no I haven't uh, she's she's a wonder so she wrote the Moomin books and she also wrote oh I've read the Moomin books yeah I've actually yeah. only read one of those but um, I've read everything else she's written that's not Moomin books that's been translated into English um, oh you'd love them Rachel they're great you'd love the summer book I know you'd love the summer book it's all about um, a child and her and his her and it's been a long time grandmother um, on an island in Scandinavia it's very beautiful that does sound beautiful and yeah and I think if I am I Swedish or Finnish whichever one she wrote and she was either Swedish she? well she was either a Swedish speaking Finn or a Finnish speaking Swede I can never remember okay. which one okay. <laughs> but yes I can't speak either of those languages <laughs> So uh, I'm <laughs> I'm very grateful to Thomas Thiel and Sylvester Mazzarella and other people who have translated her work into English. Um, but I do see what you mean, um, where you said you wanted to make sure you're reading the author's own words, because I do often think, do I love Tevi Anson or do I love you know, Thomas Thiel? It's hard to know. So is are her books, have they been translated by different people? Um, a few, most of them are done by Thomas Thiel, um, but a few other people have done, especially the short stories. They seem to have you noticed a difference in style between reading them? I actually, different people. I haven't actually, and I sort of, I hoped maybe I would. <laughs> I hoped that I would spot a difference, or maybe that just means that style well, is something that can saying, be conveyed. That's a good translation, then, isn't it? That means that they've managed to get across the yeah, heart of their yeah. stuff, which you can't necessarily tell. I read somewhere once a translator said it's it's their job is to become invisible. And oh, yeah, yeah. I think that's really the heart of what translation should be. And what I don't, what I, what I didn't like about, I mean, I'm going back to Dr. Chicago again because it's the most recent example sure. I've had of <laughs> I found just so disappointing because I read it the first time round. Um, I can't remember the name of the original translators. I want to say Manya Harari was one of them and someone else. Um, 
And that's very sort of basic. It was quite a rushed translation because they wanted to get it to the publishers quite quickly. Um, but the newer one, the Volokonsky and Severe one, um, I think Boris Pasternak's daughter or granddaughter, niece, some relation, <laughs> still alive, um, said that it was like this travesty and it hadn't got across his um, style of writing at all. And presumably she can read it in the original. Presumably, so, yeah. Presumably. <laughs> Um, so she said it, it was nothing, it, nothing like his actual writing. And then when I read it myself, the difference between that and the first translation were, was enormous. Yeah. So now I have absolutely no idea what <laughs> he writes like. Um, so, so it's your problem here that you're sort of thrown into confusion. Is that you yeah. Just, yeah. And I don't, I mean, I, obviously the story is the story, but, and you know, the, the story itself is very, powerful one anyway but as someone who loves sort of analyzing literature and and language Mm. etc the construction of sentences and the construction of images and the use of figurative language etc you know that's really important to me and the way someone writes you sort of you feel their spirit through their words and if i can't do that then i don't really see the point in reading it and there's so many books in the language that I, i can read which is but and only English. <laughs> I think, well, you know, why should I, I? I want to sort of wait to read these books until I can read them in their native language. And one day I will do my Russian degree, but that I have <laughs> and I'm retired, so I will one day. But um, yeah, I don't know. I just it just feels like I'm reading it with a massive sort of filter in between me and the text, and that's all I don't like. Uh, yeah, it is. I think for me, it's not. That's definitely an issue, but I guess I feel like if I have to read them that way, it's better than not reading them at all, maybe. Well, this is true. Yeah. I mean, you have to read your classics, don't you? So, you know, I've read all the foreign standards. You are, you should read some Russian stuff. I, I am going to say I definitely have not read all the foreign standards. This is, this is the thing of doing an English degree at Oxford where anything that wasn't home counties, essentially, was a bit suspect. <laughs> like, <laughs> there wasn't even any American literature on my degree. They're like, no, not. Well, not. the University of London, Simon, we're far more... Um, <laughs> you egalitarian. <laughs> we had a few people we counted as English, like Henry James, he's okay. Like James Joyce and Catherine Mansfield. Like, they, they get under the wire, we can count them. <laughs> yeah, but my lecturer did once tell me that um, American literature was an oxymoron, so... Um, <laughs> this is like, a topic for a whole other podcast, I think, and we need to debate. <laughs> because, um, I don't you, there's no great American classics. That's something for a future episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Um, so apart from Lear and Spring, which I have, I have conceded is a lovely book, um, what other books would you recommend uh, that are set abroad that might challenge my prejudice? Um, definitely The Hotel by Elizabeth Bowen. Okay. Um, that reminds me, I have read... Oh, this is a challenge. I read, was there one in Paris? The House in Paris, is it called? Yeah. That is, that, that is brilliant. Yeah. I forgot um, about that one. <laughs> what else have had books are set abroad and just thinking? Um, just turning around to look. Are you looking at yourselves? <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at myself. Um, I think all the others are in England, actually, but the hotel I thought was really good. It's set in. I want to say Italy, but I could be lying. Um, in a in a hotel, funnily enough, and it's again, it's another one of those abroad through the eyes of English people. But it's more to do with the relationships between the English people in the hotel than it is with their interactions with people outside of the hotel. So you wouldn't really tell that it was set abroad. Okay, and I I so, do love um with the exception of Room with the View. I do love. 
hotel or boarding house or whatever novels they're always fun. Right. Well, there you are. So then yeah. you and, and while you were talking, I also, when you said Italy, I also remembered The Enchanted April by Elizabeth von Arnim. Oh, so I I'm, know. I'm essentially on. unpacking my own argument and realising that it's <laughs> entirely false. <laughs> Um, what I would like to read, which I haven't ever, I did think I've ever done, is a translated book set in England. It'd be interesting to see. Oh, in- England no, I from can't a- even think of an example. No, there must. I mean, I'm sure there are examples, but I just yeah. What are there any great European classics set in England? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just trying to think. Are there any of like Emil Zola's books set in, in London? Oh, I've not read anything. By him. No, I haven't. Oh, dear listeners, please, please let us know. (laughs) (laughs) Comment, berate us. Ignorant people. (laughs) Yes, we're just here to expose our ignorance, essentially. Uh, um, see, now that I'm thinking, I can't even think of any books that were written in English right now, apart from Terry Anson. Is, is she the only non-English person who's ever written a book? Is that right? Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Uh, so, I mean, I made up this this premise of translated verses um, set abroad. Do you think it's Do you think it's a legitimate either or situation? Do you think, or do you think they're just different entities anyway? Well, I think, I mean, once you unpack it, really, what you're not saying is that you, you don't mind books that are <laughs> countries. What you're saying is you don't, you don't like books that are written from the perspective of an English person looking at people from another country. Whereas if a book set in a different country doesn't bother you, as long as the people in that country don't interact with people. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically, as long as they go there and don't talk to anyone local, don't leave their hotel. <laughs> Well, I didn't realise I was so insular. <laughs> Simon. Okay. This podcast but is going to reveal more than my ignorance, it seems. <laughs> I, no, I do see what you're saying, though, because I do think sometimes it's interesting. It's more interesting to read books by people who've actually experienced that country and know that country. But then I think, um, at the same time, it is really interesting to see English people abroad and to have our habits exposed. And our prejudice is exposed. That's true, yeah. It does reveal more about yeah, the English when you set them against I don't know, whoever else yeah. you're talking to. I mean, I mean EM4, etc., it's also empire, isn't it? Maybe that's the difference as well. Yeah, if it's if it's done in a sort of... Is EM4 a colonial? I don't know. <laughs> Probably. I would say so. Very <laughs> um, um, hmm. Edwardian, isn't he? He's very of his time. That's true, he wasn't very forward-thinking, perhaps. Or perhaps he was, um, in other ways. That's but another debate. Yeah, <laughs> we can stick him up against like, even war or something in another podcast. Yeah. Um, so in our sort of tea or books decision-making when we, of um, translation versus books that have 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 what, what have you come to? I'm guessing you're sticking with books in English that have Yeah, I mean, I'm not against translation as a... Sort of concept. I just, for me, I would always rather read in the original. Um, and I have been swayed a lot more into realizing I just don't like travel literature. Maybe I shouldn't extend that for, <laughs> that much. <laughs> but I think if it comes to a situation where I have to pick just one of them, I am going to stick with translated fiction for Tevi answer alone. Well, there yeah, we go. I'm yeah. going to have to read this this summer book. Oh, she's so good. I, I, this has become a huge like I love Tevi discussion, but. That one is amazing, and then, well, all of it is amazing, but The True Deceiver is so dark and so different, 
But if okay. you're those two, you've got the whole spectrum and you'll love her because you must. Okay. <laughs> I will take that on board. And people listening all need to read Illyrian Spring by Anne Bridge, which That's is true. the most superb book in the history of writing <laughs> of, of English people being abroad. I think that's not an understatement perfect yet. <laughs> um, not an overstatement, rather. Um, and it has also got a beautiful new edition from Dawn Books recently. Not, not a sponsor, but if they want to sponsor us. <laughs> Please do get in touch. And also, um, they have just redone um, Peking Picnic, which is another Anne Bridge novel that's uh. set in China. So, um, Illyrian Spring, for those who don't know, is set on the Dalmatian coast, which is in Croatia and Italy um, and this one is The Peking Picnic which has also just been re-released by Dawn is set in China in the 1930s and Anne Bridge was the wife of a diplomat so she did actually live in these countries so there's really interesting insight into her experiences Ah, uh, maybe that's why I liked it <laughs> Cool, so should we, should we move on to the second half? If you're gonna... Yes, let's do that This is the great match of Emily and Charlotte Bronte <laughs> and um, you said you had strong opinions, so oh, I'm excited to hear them. Very strong. <laughs> I, I hate Emily Bronte with a passion. Um, I'm, I, I can hear the intake of breath already. I've got a very complex answer, but um, you should go first. Why do you hate her? I think Wuthering Heights is the most ridiculous, <laughs> um, immature, histrionic, <laughs> pile of rubbish I've read <laughs> in my life and this is after I mean I have had to teach it to my A-level class this year um, and you know we were just in fits the whole way through <laughs> just the most ridiculous book you know people don't eat for three days and then they die <laughs> you know, everyone dies and they're all floating around dying and being horrible to each other and there's no real sort of purpose I mean obviously if you analyse it and go deeper you can talk about the way in which it reflects the fear of in- the, the industrial revolution and all the rest of it but you know as a as a book just to read for pleasure there is no pleasure involved <laughs> and I just don't think it's well written I think it's awful and when I mean I wrote my dissertation on the Brontes Ah. I will confess now. Um, and actually, my focus ended up being on Anne Bronte, who I feel is much uh, underappreciated. Um, well, you may have stolen a march on on my what was going to be my exciting big reveal that I think Anne is the best of the three. Oh, well, we're in agreement. We are. We've, we, we, like, we don't want either of you. <laughs> but, but those two can just go go away. But um, I think the tenant of Wildfire Hall is extraordinary, especially for its time. But um, I do think there is something about Jane Eyre that I think is there's a romance to it. It speaks to a woman's soul. I mean, the whole section with Sinjin, I mean, you could cut that out. <laughs> I mean, oh, surprise, we're cousins. That's ridiculous. So, <laughs> the other parts of it, the romance, and I love the ending, the fact that only when Jane has got the, her inheritance and she's sort of financially independent does she then go to him and say I will marry you now and I just think that's that's such a great message for the time well I'm all pro women's financial independence what, <laughs> what I'm controversially enough what I'm what I'm not super pro is mm, you did try to commit bigamy but now you're blind so sure let's let's have a marriage sorry spoilers alert if anyone's not read Jane <laughs> <laughs> Um, my complex answer to the Emily or Charlotte question, and we probably will come back to Anne, is that I pref- I think Emily is a much better writer, but I hated Wuthering Heights because I just found it scary. It was just... It was such a dark depiction of hatred that I... Yeah, I, well, I could barely cope reading it. So I think 
she to make to convey that I think she does brilliantly but I should say I've not read it since I was 17 so I may not no longer think that but yeah um, this is a much more powerful book than than the two that I've read by, by Charlotte which is Jane Eyre and Follett but um See, I would disagree with you entirely on that. Really? Mm. Come at me. Come at me, bro. (laughs) I think that Jane Eyre is incredibly powerful in its portrayal of a woman who knows what she wants and knows her own mind. And I think if if you have to sort of consider them within the historical context and how radical it is to have a woman refuse a man and to walk away from basically what he's offering her. She's poor, she's got nothing, she's plain. And to say, actually, do you know what? I'm not going to do this, and I will walk away. And yes, you know, there's the woman in the attic and all the rest of it. Mr. Rogers is not necessarily a nice person, but you know, I could argue this for days. This is about <laughs> hours and hours worth of debate. But, <laughs> but it's it's a it's a beautiful book because it is about a woman who knows herself, and it's very rare to find that in a book from the 1850s. And then Villette, the ending is the most heart-rendingly awful... I've never cried so much. <laughs> never cried so much in a book. It was... I I just can't... Even now... I'm Do you, still, are you tearing up? <laughs> I, I'm tearing up a little bit. There's something about it. Because you just... She's so unhappy for so much of the book, and it's such a fascinating... I mean, that section where she's having that sort of hallucinatory experience... Um, in the fairground. Do you remember that bit? I don't. That's uh, appalling. <laughs> Sorry. It's, but it's it's really brilliantly written, and so before it's before it's time, it's kind of Freudian in many places. And then you get to the end, and you know she's been through this awful experience, and finally, she, I'm I'm going to completely spoil this for everyone. I'm really sorry. <laughs> um, and I oh, actually I won't I won't say anything. But it's just it's really sad. But it's kind of there's there's a possibility that it's not going to be sad. But in your heart that you you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, the ending completely confused me. Actually, I'm gonna have to admit I misread it completely. I went to book group because we did it for book group, and they were like, everyone was like, actually no, I'm gonna wait for it to say it's actually this. I was like, oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of it cut me to the core. Yeah. I do. I, it's not as um, I think she's less of a sympathetic. A heroine in Jane Eyre. It's very difficult to warm to Lucy, which I think is why it's not as popular a novel. But in terms of the actual writing and the craft of it as a text, it's it's miles away, miles ahead of Jane Eyre, I think. I think, yeah, if Jane Eyre had ended when she said no, or even after St. John, I might have I might like it a lot more. I just the whole like I could hear his voice call me across across oh, the wilderness. Like, why could you hear his voice? What? No, 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 this is like, no. You can't suddenly introduce metaphysics in the, like the last twenty yeah, pages. It's, it's about the soul and how love transcends. Transcends yeah. someone being a complete. I know it's uh, but being a complete <laughs> awful person. Well, actually, a lot of feminist critics say that um, him being castrated, yeah, the loss of his sight is a form of castration, and that's his punishment. And I get that, but I don't think that makes him marriageable material. <laughs> well, but he has learned and he has grown and he has suffered. You <laughs> not, know. Not enough. <laughs> well, perhaps. But, she okay. should have married Sinton and been a missionary. Love her, he was horrid. Yeah, I mean, there's that. I'm not going <laughs> to. <laughs> um, yes, I think this is also my problem. Oh, my main problem with Wyoming Heights, to go to that, even though I think, it, I think the writing is very powerful, is. Why do people think it's a love story? Where's that it's come it's from? It's not. <laughs> I did, I'm glad we're on the same page with that because I didn't want to have to like just yell at you into submission on this. But of course, your party sense sort of think this. But I went to I went to a, another book group did that 
and someone's just like, oh, it's just, it's just a lovely story. It's like, he, what? Heathcliff loved her so much that he married someone else and killed her dog. That's, that's, that's not no. love. The thing is, I don't think they love each other because they say that, you know, he, Kathy says, I am Heathcliff and Heathcliff says that he, she is his, his soul as well. It's really about the fact that, I think it's about selfishness. It's and about, about, and, and, yeah, um, spite. Loving yeah. themselves, and yeah. not other people. They don't, they can't love each other because how can you love someone who is basically you? It's, it's odd. I think in some ways they're kind of like a, I suppose, a manifestation of each other's ego or something, if you read it in a Freudian yeah, way. Like narcissism complex or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. And it's not romantic in the slightest. In fact, you know, my personal reading of it is that it's about um, the fact that cause everyone's like, oh, it's, isn't it great that, you know, at the end, and then they're ghosts and they're sort of skipping off, <laughs> transcending the boundaries of life and death. Um, I don't see it like that. I see, I mean, I think especially when I'm talking like a teacher now, sorry, because this is what I I'm making notes. It's great. <laughs> is that, um, because they have sort of, they're, they're separated from God in the fact they don't go to heaven. They're sort of hmm. condemned to walk the earth as spirits forever. And you're thinking about it, the terms of it being a novel written in 1847. Christianity is obviously the predominant religion in Britain hmm. and Bronte being the daughter of a, of a vicar, you know, I see that not as a good thing that they're ghosts together. I see it as a punishment that they're separated from God and they're separated from yeah, heaven. Yeah. They are being punished for the sin of allowing themselves to um, put themselves before everyone else throughout their entire life and ruin everyone else's lives in the process. And I mean, Heathcliff must be the most hateful figure in literature. I think that's yeah, the, I mean, there's, yeah. well, there's a lot of you know. I do feel a bit sorry for him because he did have a tough start in life, and <sighs> get over it, Heathy. You know, just move on. But dust yourself down. Get on. Just move on. <laughs> so you were orphaned. Like, <laughs> yeah, we've all been yeah. orphaned. <laughs> okay, maybe not. <laughs> there are elements of his character that are sympathetic, absolutely. But I think you know, overall, it's just. It's a very bleak um, portrayal, I think, of life as if you allow yourself to become consumed by selfish desires. And that is why I struggle to understand people who say it's the most romantic book ever. You know, when, like, when they brought out that ridiculous co- front cover that looked oh, like yes. Twilight to get all the twi- people who read Twilight to read Wuthering Heights to be like, oh, it's the greatest love story ever told. It's like, no, it isn't. I guess if your benchmark <laughs> is Twilight, then you might think it is. <laughs> <laughs> Um, when I was reading it, I was so scared of Heathcliff that I, my brother um, had to text me and say, when you get to the bits where he's really evil and really cruel, just remember, he was played on stage by Cliff Richard. <laughs> and this was in the days where Cliff Richard's name was not in question. <laughs> but, <laughs> so that helped me a lot. I was like, Cliff Richard, least, least scary public figure. Again, at that time, I should never have introduced Cliff Richard. This is become a much more controversial <laughs> podcast than we were intending. It's darker, Simon. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I will say this in favour of Wuthering Heights, Kate Bush's song is amazing. Love it. That is true. That is, the fact that it has inspired such musical genius kind of lets it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where's, where's the Jane Eyre song? And can we also agree, whilst we're talking about Charlotte, that literally no one in the world has ever read Shelley or The Professor? Um, I have. <laughs> you, you have not. <laughs> I seriously have. <laughs> I wrote my dissertation on this. But, um, no, Shirley is utter trite. And, okay. um, the professor's alright, but it's not great. <laughs> yeah. I love how I'm just dismissing, I acknowledge <laughs> classics <laughs> in, in one game. 
Um, <laughs> so shall we turn to shall we turn attention to Anne? Should we do yes. that? Because I flipping love Agnes Grey. I think it structurally it might be the best Victorian novel. Like somehow the way. And when I say that, I mean it sort of encapsulates. It's like the perfect ideal of a novel. The, the you know the frame of her life and the way things happen in it. Um, I don't know. I was finished with thinking this is the platonic ideal of Victorian literature. <laughs> That's what I thought. I yeah, absolutely. And I think it's very neat and tidy, and it's very emotionally moving as well. Mm. Um, and it's very revealing of a woman's position in nineteenth-century society. Absolutely. Um, and she chooses a nice man, just a nice man. A nice mm. man who's going to look after her. Yeah, he's makes n- a sensible choice. He's got no mad woman in the attic. He doesn't kill dogs. No. <laughs> Speaking of which, do you remember the um? Oh gosh, the scene with the birds and the stone. Yes. Oh I'm my gosh. That child. That's one of the most affecting scenes I've ever read. I think where she has to has to kill the birds to put them out of their misery. Oh my gosh. Yeah, this That's, is a yeah. uh, raw book, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And Tender Wildfire Hall I liked less at the time, but I feel like I would like more now. I, do you know what I love about Tender Wildfire Hall, again, is, I mean, th- it's not the most brilliantly written book in the entire world, I get that, but it's the fact that she was willing to discuss such a daring topic at the time mm-hmm. makes me have huge respect for her, because, you know, it was... You think of what they saw their brother go through. Um, his grandma Bronte was mm. an alcoholic and all of this, and a drug addict as well. I think I might be making that oh, up. Let's like tar him with that brush. Yeah, sure. let's say that. <laughs> um, but they witnessed that experience and being open to write about that and to say, you know, this is this is what some men are like and this is how they treat women. And obviously, people weren't going to like reading that. And yeah. but she wrote about it anyway, and I just love that independence of spirit that she had to say something really powerful, something that was really relevant to society, whereas Wuthering Heights isn't relevant to anybody. <laughs> That's true. Dig beneath the surface and start analysing it and saying, oh, you know, well, this could be a manifestation of her you know, subverted desire to express a fear of industrialization or something i mean yeah sure. <laughs> or you could write a book that people can just read and get you know, yeah. <laughs> oh and i want to come back to that but i just remembered joseph's dialect oh, oh emily <laughs> i'm back to anne sorry <laughs> um i actually this is a strike against charlotte um um um, I'm sure you you know this, uh, but in case people listen to it, um, the introduction that she wrote, yeah, um, where she was like, "Poor little Anne," sort of. She tried to write, "Bless her heart," which then Elizabeth Gaskell picked up in her biography of Charlotte and was just like, "Yeah, and bless her." It's like, "No, Charlotte, stop no. it." Well, this was the whole premise of my dissertation. Oh, was it? Oh. Yes, but I said the whole reason why people don't read Anne is because of her reputation had been tarnished by Charlotte, and ever since then her work wasn't given the attention that it deserved because it was just dismissed as the ravings of this silly little girl who didn't know anything. But, you know, in actuality, she was the one who was willing to write about the real things, and the reason why she wasn't popular in the Victorian period was because people didn't want to hear the truth. Yeah. This is actually a lot of people, modern critics say, oh, you know, she's too moralising, you know, she's it's too didactic, but actually, if you look at 19th century fiction, the vast majority of, of 19th century fiction was didactic. I mean, look at Elizabeth Gaskell, how many times do you want to be hit round the head? <laughs> don't have sex before marriage, people, don't have babies, you will die. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of 
didacticism wasn't something that was new to a 19th century audience. So the whole reason why people didn't like her books in the 19th century was because she spoke about the way in which men um, were abusive a lot of the time to their wives and Mm -hmm. men didn't want to read that. And that is why, you know, she has been maligned and she hasn't become popular and nobody's making, you know... Films BBC about miniseries. Yeah. <laughs> there, there has been a BBC miniseries, which was actually pretty good. Okay. Um, but it's not a popular text. It's not, and Anne Bronte isn't someone that people talk about. When you talk about the Brontes, people talk about Jane Eyre and they talk about Wuthering Heights. It's yeah. like she doesn't even exist. And I think going back to didacticism. I don't mind a bit of didacticism. Okay. I, yeah, I think as long as it's op- she's being open about it. I think a lot of modern novels are quite didactic for whatever agenda they they believe in, but in they're a sort very of politicized. Yeah, like. yeah. But but if you're pretending to be open-minded in the guise of like, I don't know. Sometimes if you only say that the most open-minded seem the most closed-minded because it's like oh my god, as long as everyone agrees with me. Right. Whereas <laughs> whereas Anne, I thought she she was very openly saying I'm writing this. Or at least her character was saying, I'm writing this as, you know, a Christian woman in this situation with yeah. these views. I remember she when when um if a child you know which novel novel it is, I think it might be Agnes Way, she says, Here's a child that I've got to fit for heaven. I thought, Oh such a nice expression and now any editor would cross that out and it's nice that she could just leave that in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think there's nothing that's wonderful to sort of read that someone who's willing to express their views in that way and to try and encourage people to think about those things when they're reading a book. Mm. You know, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with getting you to think about your moral duty or what's wrong with getting you to think about God? There's nothing... Why should we criticise that? Exactly. Or say that a book isn't worthy because it does. You know, most modern texts trying to convert you to their particular political worldview or their, you know, theoretical worldview. So... And with any book, you're, you may agree, you may not, you may change your mind, but it's, yeah. Um, yeah, we've got your back, Anne. We, we're all for you. <laughs> um, well, I guess it sounds like, in our Teal Books decision of Charlotte or Emily, we're picking Anne. <laughs> <laughs> Neither. <laughs> Neither. <laughs> would, you, would, you, would you pick Anne above the other two, or would you lean back on Charlotte? You know what, I think for... For respect as a woman, I would go with Anne. For pleasure as a reader, I would go with Charlotte. Okay. Well, you're hitting your bets. <laughs> I'm sitting on a fence. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm I'm going to say, I'm just going to pick Anne all round. I think she's, it's not a passionate book. It's Well, it's not a, a wild passionate book. There are passions in it, in mm. books. Um but I think both as a stylist and as a plotter and as um, yeah, morally and, and, and as a depiction of the time, I still think she is the best of the three. Wow, I'm not I'm not going to disagree with you. <laughs> I've tried to set this up as us being at, at each other's throats about issues, and actually, when it comes down to it, we just forget. <laughs> I know well, we're both just too sensible, <laughs> um, or <laughs> or we're both wrong. I don't know. We're going to come up with much more dramatic things in the future because I thought this one would be. When you, <laughs> um, <laughs> the thing is, I think it's impossible to find someone who can. No one has ever tried to. uh, well people have tried to convince me that Emily Bronte is brilliant and every time I'm just like no because of this 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 and this and um, no one's ever going to persuade me otherwise so 
Yeah, well, there's a challenge to our listeners. Yeah. Because um, I imagine most people listening probably do prefer Charlotte or, or Emily to Anne, <laughs> unless she's, you know, the underdog that we haven't realised is the most popular. <laughs> so, yeah, comment, tweet at us, whatever. <laughs> hey, what do you think? Awesome. Um... Anything more you want to say about either of those topics, Rachel, or have we come to the end? No, I think we've come to a natural close. Isn't that nice? Um, <laughs> so we don't know what the, the um, topic's going to be next time because we've not decided yet. No, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's what we are. We're just spontaneous people. <laughs> that's so, us all over. <laughs> next time, and you'll find out. Yeah, thanks for listening. And, and yeah, we don't have a clue how to make podcasts, so hopefully this has gone all right. <laughs> <laughs>